Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Jane Irrigation Training Series. And today we're going to be talking about uh, not just irrigation or water management, but um, more importantly, or as importantly, uh, what that good irrigation management is supposed to do, and that's keep plants alive. And more importantly, as we drive into this drought further and further, uh, what becomes more and more important is uh, low water use plants. But certainly a lot of people get a vision of low water use plants as ones that are maybe succulents or cactus and, and that's it. And um, I got to tell you, there are a lot um, more choices. I almost said better. That's really uh, your preference, but there's a lot of different choices out there for, uh, for low water use plants. And uh, so we're going to examine some of those today uh, to help you become a better water manager on your landscape or in your garden. And so helping uh, us learn this today is uh, Nicholas Staden. And uh, for those of you who know Nicholas, you know he is a renowned plant expert. Oh. He works for eVerdi Growers. I think that almost anywhere that I travel around the country and there is a big event, I'll find Nicholas speaking at it. Uh, he's uh, got a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he's involved in a lot of the plant societies, but uh, most of all, uh, what I really appreciate about Nicholas is he does have an incredible grasp of plants. And, you know, in a society where most people are plant blind, uh, the general public don't, don't know much about plants and, uh, and have a hard time identifying them. He is a wealth of knowledge, but most importantly, he's able to impart this knowledge on others in an easy, understandable manner making it fun. So I'm really glad he's here. Nicholas, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Well, Richard, you are just too good for my ego. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, fortunately, we're recording this, so you can play that anytime. Thank you. And I really mean it. I mean, I've seen you speak a lot and uh, I've learned so much. And again, you made it interesting and fun. So, uh, yeah, you know, and the lead in, and, and really this is a irrigation uh, webinar uh, series, but uh, the thing I wanted to ask you first, Nicholas, is the drought. How? I mean, you're all over the West. I mean, this thing's half the country's in this drought. Sure. In your in and you've seen a lot of droughts over time. Sure. How bad is this one? Sure. Um, it, it it it's really not good, and so it's causing a lot of the water municipalities, you know, large organizations to really relook at how they how they farm the water, right, and how they actually distribute the water. You know, so much of the water distribution is 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 above ground. So there's a terrific amount of evaporation, whether it's in you know Lake Mead or the canal that brings a terrific amount of the water down to Southern California. You know, ten ten percent of that water completely evaporates. Um, you know, the canals when it was built should have been one massive pipe, and they're actually talking about that now. So whether it happens is not. So I think the um, where where the where the rub is, you know, plants, gardening, water, all that sort of thing. Um, we're, we're all very cognizant of using less water, but, you know, America is the land of plenty. And when it comes to water, um, there, there are there's some people that will kind of start, you know, they'll screw down the tap a little bit. But even in my, my own neighborhood, which is a you know, group of very nice people, you can see who's just got the sprinklers on 
you know, every night and who doesn't? My, my garden has turned into a wasteland, right? Because I just, I shut all the water off. The grass is dead. You know, a couple of areas I had some fake grass put in because my wife absolutely revolted. She said, Nicholas, no, no grass. You're, you know, you sleep in the garage. So I said, all right, sweetie pie. So we've got some green grass. But I think it's, um, it's up to all of us to be uh, cognizant. And you know, a little bit more research. Uh, there's some terrific plants out there that provide color. Um, you know, get get birds in the garden, get wildlife in the garden, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The biggest risk that we run under this drought situation is to turn our gardens into just barren areas. Yeah. What's ha what's happened is over the years that um, farmers farmers have removed all the woods, they've removed all the hedgerows, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And those used to be the highways and byways of birds, pollinators, and creatures. What has happened is we've seen this mass migration of creatures that have come to live in the cities with us. So mm. it's crucial that in our plantings, we recognize that. Um, we provide nesting cover, wind cover, we provide food sources, whatever it might be. And several, well, a lot of the plants we're going to talk about today, uh, we will uh, we, we'll talk, you know, we will have that in mind. Yeah, so that's really interesting. That's uh, something I hadn't considered before. I'm glad you brought that up. Now, yeah. look, um, I hear what you're saying about um, you know being responsible, and I want to be responsible. I want to be a good citizen. I want to yeah. be somebody who's a team player, not standing out as a water waster. Uh, but I also want my garden to look good. It's uh, so it's got to look pretty. It's got to look, <laughs> right. look nice. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is this is the uh, this is my passion. This is what I love. This is my world. Yeah. Yep. So are there plants that I can purchase and put in my garden that are low water use that have leaves and are leafy and not succulents and not yep. cactus? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, there are. So what I'll do is that can I run through some of the opening slides? Yeah. So people can see where we're at. And I'll, and I'll just I'll, I'll make a few assumptions along the way and, and we'll work into the plants. So so for those of you listening, uh, ter terrific to meet you all. And my, my assumption would be that the reason you're listening in, one, because you've got, you've got a bit of a conscience about water, right? But the other thing is you have a passion for plants. Um, and when I was much younger, I had no passion for plants. I used to garden with my granny, I used to hate every single moment of it. And I only developed my, my passion for plants when I came to America. And quite by chance, I started working in uh, independent garden centers in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then I was approached by some growers in California to come work for them there. And that's exactly what I did. So, you know, a couple of things. So in, in my garden, I do a terrific amount of container gardening. So for those of you who, let's say we've got people on the call that don't have a large garden, you can do a lot with containers and you can do a lot with containers when it comes to water wise plants. So uh, th this is a brand new man mandevilla I'm trialing. Most mandevillas, they're warm plants. They live in the warmer climates outside, colder regions in America. They're going to be an annual for you. You know, you can bring them indoors if you want to, like into the garage, something like that. But very often it's just as easy to start with a new plant. So with these types of plants, uh, the mandevillas, right? People, most people think we need to pour the water on them. You don't. So we've been very, very warm in Southern California. This is a smaller pot. This is probably like a 12 inch pot. And that this particular plant gets a drink twice a week. Just give it a nice soak and then we move on. We've had temperatures up where I am 
of 112 degrees, and I live in the coastal ranges, so it's very, very warm. So the, Nicholas, uh, I yeah. want to ask you about that. Um, so this this plant and the one one before, right? Yeah. Um, I see these in Arizona all the time. Uh, yeah. Am I going to be able to grow Mediterranean plants in other areas than where we have Mediterranean climate? So, so my here's my. It's a terrific qu question, Richard. So, uh, if you really love plants, you you are in zonal denial. So we have this. It's called the United States, uh, the, the USDA, the um, uh, the United States Department of Agriculture Plant Hardiness Zones. So America is broken down into different zones. So if you, after after the event, if you're not familiar with them, type in USDA plant hardiness zones, right? And this is probably a, a USDA, USDA zone nine, zone 10. It'll live beautifully in Southern California. San Francisco is kind of pushing the limits. And once you get sort of up into the colder regions of America, it's just gonna be an annual. In the warmer regions, you can garden with the plants year round. But why these plants are so key is that so many people who, uh, who love their gardens, their patios, whatever it might be, they like to decorate them and they decorate them with these types of plants. So right soil, a little bit of fertilizer, drink a couple of times uh, a week, you can have a great display. We, um, we plants, right? Plants are very emotional. And we want, as Richard stated, we want our gardens to look good. So you can use these types of plants all over America. Um, some will live year round, some will be annual. So the so uh, so we have a so the um, this is a mandevilla called uh, part of the Bella series called Bella Compact Red. That's like a twenty-inch container. I've had that plant in that container for the last five years. Uh, uh, once every two years, I go in and I'm going to cut it back to about 12 inches. I fertilize it like uh, every 30 days, just a handful of uh, regular fertilizer. And it gets a drink probably about once a week, even during the summertime, right? Because it's got such a large area of soil. And once a year, I'll go in there because I use an organic soil, which holds the moisture well. And that organic soil during the course of the year, the microbes will eat it. So what you do is you lift up the side of the plant and then I recharge with fresh organic soil once a year. So it's, it's, it's a revolving door. Um, you know, plants need grub, you know, like the rest of us. We, some of us get three squares a day. You know, with me, I kind of have one, one square a day. Uh, otherwise I'm gonna get as big as a house. But plants, when they're flowering, when they're growing, that they like regular food, very, very important. Yeah, that's a great point. I just want to remind oh. everybody, I've got the Q&A and the chat open uh, this afternoon. So if you have some questions for Nicholas or some comments, drop them in there and uh, I'll ask them when it's appropriate. Yeah, Richard, thank you. So just, you know, just what, books are really crucial and I encourage you all to have a library or subscribe to a magazine, whatever it might be. So for those of us in Southern California, we have a young lady called Nan Stearman. Uh, Nan has done this terrific book called Hot Color Dry Garden. So what she's done is she's gone from Southern California all the way to uh, New Mexico or West Texas in actual fact, photographing gardens that, that look absolutely terrific. You know, they've got grasses, all sorts of things in them, flowers, perennials, whatever it might be. And they're very water-wise gardens. What the thread, the thread that runs through all these gardens is, 
that all the plants have the same kind of sort of soil needs. They have the same type of water needs and they have the same type of fertilizer needs. So when you're designing your garden, you know, take into account, you know, how much water the plant will need, the type of soil you have, type of mulch. You know, it, it, it's not complicated. They're just a few very basic uh, rules to follow. So I thought it might be fun. And Richard, you pull me up here whenever you want. Okay. The, the, this Mediterranean garden, right? The, the, the Mediterranean term for us now in the growing side consists of plants coming from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, South America, California, and also the Mediterranean region, uh, even going on into the Black Sea. So the area around the Black Sea that we're hearing so much about on the news at the moment. So there is this cornucopia of plants that look beautiful. This is a salvia called, I'm, I'm gonna show you something, a couple of things here I'm gonna show you that they have not been shown before. So you're the first group to see them. This is a salvia called Amistad. Plants been around for a number of years in the trade. We're seeing this terrific annualization of perennials. So that's to say where people used to use marigolds or petunias or stuff like that in their containers, they're actually putting these, uh, they're putting perennials into the containers. Amistad is a South American plant. That's where it was discovered. It's a killer plant for that Mediterranean type garden look. Once established, right, it's gonna get about four to five feet high. It, it really is. You can make a hedge of these plants, hummingbird magnet, very low water use. You'll notice I use the term established and Richard and I were talking about that. So with plants, let's say shrubs and trees, they normally take about three growing seasons to get established, right? So when you, when you start off watering them, depending on your soil, you've got to make sure they have what uh, kind of sort of a regular drink. Don't, you know, if you've got a brand new plant, let's say like the salvia, you know, you're going to have to give it a drink, you know, a couple of times a week, keep the, mo keep the moisture in the soil. So crucial to use a soil amendment, have a nice mulch that you're planting with the plant, you know, mix that 50-50 with your native soil. And once your plant is planted, then put about uh, three inches of good organic mulch on top of the soil. This is an investment. This will, this will make your plant absolutely thrive. And mulching on top also is a way of reducing your water usage because that keeps the moisture in the ground. It keeps the ground cooler. So what we've got next coming up. So this is Amistad, which is a big, tall grower. Right, we, get, we have a couple of questions about oh, that. So uh, yeah, um, are, there, are there some uh, uh, varieties of uh, salvia that are annuals? That, well, so these would be, uh, uh, Richard, these would be considered annuals in the colder regions of America. So, right. so let's say this plant would be, an, would be a perennial in uh, California, um, Southern Arizona, going all the way through Texas, going down into Florida, et cetera. You could probably go up into the Carolinas with it. As you get into the colder regions of America where you have a frost, you know, uh, when the weather gets chilly, this plant would be an annual. Yeah, okay. Um, and then uh, somebody else is asking, um, their experiences that been with their salvias when they lose their, when they drop their blooms, they sometimes drop their leaves too. And is this yeah. normal or is this an issue? So, so depending, if you've got, can you ask that person where they are? Cause I'd love to know where they are. So um, these, a lot of these perennials, they take 
they need a lot of grub to keep the blooms coming and to keep the leaves coming. And it might well be they're just not getting enough food, right? Um, the On something like this Amistad, you'd, you'd have a, a fertilizer that would be 10, 10, 10. If you're just giving the plant, let's say it's 25, 5, the 20 is the nitrogen. And all you're doing is telling the plant to grow, grow, grow. And sometimes the plants, it's like, I don't want to grow. I'm done with growing, right? I need more food for my flowers, et cetera, et cetera. Also plants like this, it doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt to prune them every now and again, right? Yeah. If you want to keep them on the small side, um, that, you know, pruning can give plants a boost, cut, you know, cut them back and they will force and push again. Yeah. They said they were from California, uh, Southern California. And uh, yeah, these are, these are beautiful plants. What, so one might be really interesting, um, not, not to draw this out, but if they, if they could tell us what type of salvia they are, because there's some of those salvias which, which do better in, 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 the, in the kind of colder type regions. This is a, I'm not meaning to talk out of both sides of my mouth, but this is, a, this is an annual tropical salvia. There are salvias um, which, which will kind of grow. Uh, you know, you've got salvias that come out of Holland, right? That will grow down to zone four. They will work up in Minneapolis and places like that, but the tropicals won't. Yeah, it okay. might well be they've got one of these hardier varieties of salvias. Yeah. Okay. So, great. Thank you. Yeah. So the so all right, put your seat belts on. This is a brand new salvia that I have not yet seen on the market. It should be appearing later, uh, maybe late autumn, maybe not, but certainly in the spring of two thousand and three. Uh, this uh, salvia armistad was used in the breeding of this brand new plant. All right, seat belts on. Here we go. I love the name. Can you hear the narrative? Actually, we can't. All right. Yeah. So you can't hear the narrative? No, no. All right. Don't 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 worry. We'll bring it up. I have not. Um, what I'm look. Bear with me. Yeah. Well, How about that? Basket there we go. Bodacious hummingbird falls. It's a salvia garanitica. It's got dark bottle green foliage. The foliage doesn't go yellow like other selections, and it has dark, dark purple flowers. It's got a high nectar count and is brilliant for bringing hummingbirds into the garden. We love using it in a 14-inch basket where it will fill out with blooms. It's got a wonderful, co compact, tight habit. You can also use it in a large cachet pot on your patio where it will also cascade and bring all those hummingbirds into your garden. Wow, those are, those so, are beautiful. What, yeah, and, and what's so special about that is, you know, fully realizing that gardens sometimes do not have room for these large salvias. Here, it's a, this is a tropical flavor. So here's uh, more compact for hanging baskets for someone who maybe just has a patio. But again, you know, you put them in that larger size container, they will become very drought tolerant once they're established. This chap, his name is Robert Bett. We work very closely with Robert on new varieties and bringing these new varieties to market. Now, this is a, a Agapanthus. Uh, Agapanthus, years and years and years ago, 20 years ago, just used to be a plant that was grown in California. Uh, the, the hardiest agapanthus out there is one called Midnight Blue, which is hardy to a USDA zone seven, right? So that, that can go on up into Washington, Oregon, 
and then it'll go up into Virginia and places like that and across the central part, across the southern central part of America. Agapanthus are very much in that Mediterranean type group of plants. Agapanthus are a native to South Africa. And when they are, um, when they are established, they're very drought tolerant. This is a brand new group of Agapanthus that are coming to market in the Sunset series. And some of you might've heard of the Sunset magazine. And for those of you in the Southern part of, of America, in the, they, these are also in the um, Southern Living Program, which is massive all through the Southern part of America and on up the East Coast. So what's fun about these is they can be wintered over very easily in the garage in the colder regions. So you have a container, put that container in the garage, make sure the container keeps about above like 40 degrees during the cooler months and it'll be great. California, we can use them all year round. Now we have a, ca we have a cameo appearance by a pal of mine called Janet Sluice. And Janet is the breeder's representative. I'm in a forest of agapanthus. When I started off with these, we were in California and everyone told me I was crazy to be promoting agapanthus in California. But look at the flowers on this. This is the Ever Series, being bred by DeWitt out of South Africa. He's been breeding agapanthus for 20 years for longer blooming, showier blooms, different colored blooms. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But look at these beautiful bicolors. This is Ever Twilight that we have in the collection, Ever White, Ever Amethyst, which is our darker purple. There's also a blue Ever Sapphire. These are early blooming. In Southern California, we can get them into bloom in January and February. So they'll root bloom much earlier than any of the other varieties on the market and they will repeat bloom. So the whites are the heaviest. You can get up to three different cycles of blooms on them. And we can get one to two on these darker flowers. But the colors are great. They are excellent for hummingbirds. These are great pollinator plants. You can use them as cut flowers. And the other thing I like to mention is people always talk about snails and agapanthus. And I tell them, you know what? The snails are not coming from outer space. They are in your garden. They're not going to bring snails to your garden. If you have agapanthus, you know where your snails are. These have nice smaller leaves. They're much easier to manage and you're much easier to do snail control out of. So agapanthus are low water plants. They're coming out of South Africa. They're so great pollinator plants, easy care plants. Such a such a large uh, way of you can, you can use them anywhere in the garden. So Agapanthus Ever Series, they're the longest blooming, the earliest blooming, and the best blooming Agapanthus. So, so, so these, so as growers, you know, water-wise plants that perform well, that fall into that Mediterranean sort of sphere of influence, these are the types of plants we're looking for. And what's really cool, those of you looking at the screen, the, uh, the purple colored agapanthus, that is the first purple agapanthus in the world. It's ah. a complete color breakthrough. So um, it, it does, it fits, it fits all the bills, all the bills. Yeah, I, I think I, I had these at my last house and I think I yeah. went four years without giving them any water oh. and they look great. <laughs> I mean, they, they, were, they were fabulous. I, I, was, I was shocked. I was like, how long can this go on? And they lived and lived and, and bloomed and were beautiful. Now, Nicholas, what about the sun requirement for agapanthus? To full sun. The more, the, more, the more sun you can pile on them, Richard, the better they'll be. They, they will take dappled shade, right? But, you know, they need to, the more sun they get, the, the better they will be. So it fits perfectly with this Mediterranean mix. They, you know, as Janet said, they work great in containers. Um, you, you, you can really keep the blooms going by deadheading them. So mm. once the flowers have gone, 
uh, follow the stem back to where it like joint, you know, right down into the soil, and then you cut the stem off, and that help keeps the plants being generating. Isn't it pretty? Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not talking about Janet. I'm talking about the flowers. So, yeah, she's a great. She's a I, one of the the real fun things about uh, what I do is I get to work with some wonderful plants people, and Janet is an outstanding plants woman. She really is. So so this is really fun. Um, these are uh, two key people in the southwestern region for plants. We've got um, Randy Baldwin, uh, top left-hand corner. Randy Baldwin owns a company called San Marcos Growers, which is a leading grower in the southwestern region of America. Does all sorts of water-wise, drought-tolerant type plants. The gentleman on the right is Ron Gass. Ron Gass is the owner of a company called Mountain States Wholesale Nursery. It, it's very much... Uh, he is a breeder of indigenous plants in the southwestern region of America. And what I'm going to show you is some of the brand new introductions. So this is a group of Hasparellas. Hasparellas are USDA zone six, slipping down to USDA zone five. So for those of you in the colder regions of America, right, you've got, you've got some colder regions, look up what your zone is after we're done. These plants work in your region. They don't need any wintertime protection. So this is a Pink Parade. Pink Parade is a, is a real tall growing variety, gets about five feet high. You need to give the plant the plants like on three foot centers because they will get fairly large. The flowers attract the pollinators. They probably, these plants probably bloom for about nine months out of the year. Takes about maybe about two years to get them established. And once they're established, I've got plants in my garden that I have not watered for two years, yeah. two years. And so they get a little bit of, we, we haven't had much rain during the winter time. You know, they're not blooming as well, of course, but if I gave them a little supplemental irrigation, they'd do great. And then um, this is a breakthrough color called Desert Dusk. Desert Dusk is a purple variety of Hasparellas, shorter grower, two feet high, two feet across, and these really cool purple flowers. And the last variety, is called Sandia Glow. Uh, now, Sandia Glow is absolutely unique in the fact that it is London bus or fire engine red. And it has a, it has a um, kind of like a glossy sheen on the edge of the petals. You can see how the, uh, the foliage actually, um, sorry, the flower spikes actually shine. All these plants are terrific for hummingbirds, very water wise, terrific for the Mediterranean garden. They do well in the container or they can be planted en masse. Have, are you familiar with those, Richard? Uh, no, I, this was the first time I've seen these and they're, they're really beautiful. They um, are. And one thing I was thinking about, right? I'm, I'm gonna bet, right? I don't know, but I'm gonna bet <laughs> that if I read the uh, planting instructions, I might say put them two feet apart or 18 inches apart, but I like this tight spacing. Now I realize this is on a farm and they're all in pots, but- yeah. Can I do this? Can I plant them that close together? Yeah, yes, you can. Yeah, yes, you can do that. You you crowd them a little bit, right? Um, and it might be that one day you need to get in there and kind of thin them out if the if the mood takes you. By crowding them together tightly like that, you actually keep the ground cooler. And by by keeping the ground cooler, that's where you will you you will use less irrigation. Um, different ways of you know you can overhead uh, irrigate or you can do drip. Right, there's uh, or spaghetti drip sort of along the along the ground lines. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, 
with a, uh, a hunter irrigation. Um, uh, it's called a rotary head sprinkler. Rotary head sprinklers, um, some of you might be familiar with misters where, where the irrigation head pops up, right? When you've set the timer and it sends out a mist, probably about 60 to 70% of that mist never ever reaches the ground. It's a very small amount. So the rotary head sprinklers, they send out a jet. And as the, as the, as, as the rotary head goes around the head, uh, it goes up and down. So it sends water over a jet of water over a long distance and it sends it over a short distance. So before I let my, my front garden go to a kind of like, you know, I turn the water off, uh, I, I changed all the rotary head sprinkler. I've changed all the irrigation misters out to rotary head sprinklers, right? Uh, we saw a 30% reduction of water usage in that area just by using those sprinkler heads. Fantastic. Yeah, That's we're always I'm interested in ways to reduce uh, water use through irrigation, and yeah. uh, and and certainly too, um, you know, your 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 drip lines could be applicable in those uh, areas as well, with even a higher efficiency. So. But everybody's going to do what uh, uh, is best for them. That's correct. And then, so I wanted to mention uh, a, a couple of trees. So for those of you, this is a this is an arbutus, and this particular variety is called Marina. Now, Marina, and, and, and you know, I cannot find any written documentation to support this, but I'm absolutely convinced that Marina is a native variety to Southern mm -hmm. Italy. So this is a true, uh, a true Mediterranean plant. Stunning, stunning plant. Also extremely fire resistant. For those of you that live in fire prone areas, this is a good plant to have. In, in the warmer climates like zone seven. Uh, this is really where you'd use the plant. So you can use it um, going up Oregon all the way down to the Mexican border and down into Mexico if you want, then across uh, the Southern part of America until it gets really, really humid, then the plant doesn't do well. The plant will get very tall, 40 to 50 feet high and about 25, 30 feet across. You can keep it beautifully like 15 to 18 feet tall, pruning about maybe once every second or third year. Uh, they, most of them are multi-stem. They have this drop-dead gorgeous uh, copper-colored exfoliating bark. Um, they produce these chains of uh, blush-colored flowers, which the pollinators go bonkers over. Mm. And then uh, they have these um, fruits that start off bringing uh, yellow, to orange to um, uh, the color of the strawberry. I think the common name is, uh, is it strawberry tree or something, Richard? What's the common well, we name? We actually had somebody asking that question. And I, I think it is. I, I had yeah, a few yeah. in one of my past houses. So, yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, yeah. so you can, you, um, you can actually eat the fruit, right? And the birds love the fruit. So when you plant them, uh, have them away from uh, a walkway or from a uh, roadway or something like that. Because if there are any fruits that are left over, you know, they make a bit of a mess. But the birds get them and what the birds don't get, you, you can have. Uh, they're a little seedy, but they're very, very tasty. So that's a, a really cool plant. And then this is a breakthrough. So uh, this is a red bud, a Circus. Probably the hardiness zone is about a USDA zone six, drifting down into a five. Why this plant is going to work in a Mediterranean garden? is really quite complex. 
But if you look at the bottom right-hand picture, notice how heavily textured those leaves are. Yeah. If you could feel them, if you, if you had one beside you, they almost feel like leather. And this is a breakthrough. And uh, the breeder who actually is over in the North Carolinas, a guy called Denny Werner, is breeding for drought tolerance into Circus. Circus go right the way across America. Um, they're native to like Oklahoma and Texas and Kentucky and Tennessee and places like that. So this is a, a new variety called, uh, called Malo after the wine. Um, they have beautiful pink flowers in the early spring. And then once the flowers are finished, they have this great burgundy uh, ruby colored foliage. Uh, and because this, this heavy leathery texture that holds the moisture into the plant longer than the normal Circus leaves. Mm. So you've got a plant once established um, is not going to take anywhere near as much water. If you live in a colder region, uh, the bottom left-hand picture, you get this great autumn color. Um, it speaks for itself. It needs no description. It's a smaller growing plant, 18 feet high, 18, 20 feet across, has great architectural structure. The roots tend to be more on the fibrous side. So uh, it's not going to interfere with your sewers or your drains or stuff like that. Now, a very important point about trees is that when you, let's say uh, you have a watering system, you've planted them, you've dug your well, you give them a good drink. Trees will certainly take about three years to establish. And as they grow and as their roots start to expand away from the trunk, so you need to make sure that you're increasing your watering area. And a very trendy way to water trees is with a tree ring where you run a small irrigation line and then you have a ring you know, around the stem, something like this. And as the plant grows older, so you increase the size of the ring. Very beautiful plant, very long lived. That's Circus Malou. These are beautiful now. Are they deciduous or evergreen? A great question. They are deciduous. So, uh, so the, um, the uh, flowers will appear, let's probably say uh, March. And all the twigs, all the stems and the twigs get covered with these beautiful flowers. They actually sprout from the branches and the stem of the plant. And then uh, if it's a cooler spring, they'll probably hang on for about 30 days, something like that. And then uh, you go through the blooming season and then the leaves come on. Uh, and then at the end of summer, as the days grow shorter, and really as the nights grow much cooler, that's when you see this great color change and then the plant will go deciduous. I'm a really big fan of leaving the leaves on the ground underneath the tree, mm. right? Uh, and then what will happen is that they will be turned into a natural organic mulch. Isn't that the coolest plant? Yeah, I, I love it. I'm, yeah. I'm going to be by your place later, see if I can uh, get one of these or order yeah. one. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. So, you know, so, so what we're doing is we're multi-purposing plants. So this type of plant, right, would, would have never been used in a Mediterranean-style garden. And it's got every application for a Mediterranean-style garden. You know, tolerates pretty poor soils. It's going to tolerate a lower water usage once it's established. And this burgundy color, this burgundy color is going to set other colors off of plants or grasses in your garden. When people come in your garden, they see this type of display or color. You know what? It's, it's shocking. The first thing they say is, wow, what is that tree? And then as the owner, you can tell them all the story of the plant. Creates excitement, creates, it, and it creates emotional fulfillment.
Yeah, no, I really like that. I, 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 yeah. I certainly can see how that would be. And there's the leaves again there. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Yeah. So, so this is a, another variety of Circus, just a couple of them. This is a brand new plant from the same grower called Flamethrower. So the, the leaves are absolutely unique. And for, for those of you in California, th this plant was grown, the picture you're seeing was grown in Miramar. And since we've moved the crop up to Fallbrook, right? And Fallbrook gets up, we're in land, gets up to about 116 degrees, no burn on the leaves whatsoever. And now we're actually moving the crops up to be grown in Oregon. And then we'll, we'll be shipping them down into California and to other parts of America. But same size, beautiful pink flowers in the spring, but this extraordinary color. Uh, the leaves come out this kind of burgundy color, this reddish color, and then they go to like a golden chartreuse. And the name of this plant is called Flame Thrower. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> Very unique. So, so I thought it might be fun. Because with every Mediterranean garden, grasses are absolutely key. They're a key part of what goes on. So we've just got a couple of a couple of three suggestions here. This is the Butaluya called Blonde Ambition. Uh, this plant was actually discovered in Santa Fe, New Mexico of all places. Works beautifully in that low water Mediterranean type garden. Uh, it's called Butaluya Blonde Ambition. This picture was taken at the Huntington Library. So for those of you who are in state or out of state, when you come to California, or if you've not been there and you're local, you have to go to the Huntington Library. They have this massive Mediterranean garden right in the entranceway, and it's free, right? The, 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 the big garden, right, which is, a I don't know, a couple of hundred acres, you have to pay to get into that. But the Mediterranean garden, which is full of Mediterranean type plants of which this plant is one, that's free. And you can go to the restaurant, go to the gift shop, that sort of thing. Butaluya is a warm season grass, just like uh, Mullenbergia. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, that in a moment. So that is to say warm season grasses, you leave them completely entire until March of the following year. Don't cut them back like a lot of people do, like Miscanthus. Leave them entire because these uh, seed heads will hold, off, uh, will hold up during the winter time. This is a bigger uh, grammar grass. It's a common name of the plant. So you need to put them on like three foot centers, give them room to grow. This, this variety I bumped into, I, the, the UC Davis have a plant trial going on. And Richard, uh, if you've not been to this trial, I can get you in there. They're real fun do. So this is a new Butaluya called Zigzag. Mm. I've never seen the plant. I've never heard of it. What you see is what you get. For, this, for that low water Mediterranean type garden, this is gonna be an absolute smoker. All these plants in this, uh, this trial get very low water usage, but you can see how they mulch them. This is like pretty, pretty new mulch. Personally, I'd have had it probably a year old, but that's about three inches and look how healthy these plants is. That's a Butalia called Zigzag. I think that's about a year away from coming on the market. Yeah, so I have a question about these grasses, in yes. particular the, the last two that you showed. If I put these in my garden, um, <clears throat> are they going to blow seeds everywhere and just start propagating all? I, I'm just going to end up having a garden of just grass? You asked the best questions. So um, th this was a question we were all asking ourselves. Um, when we have these plants in production, 
the production beds, which are, they have regular irrigation, they have nice soil, regular fertilizer, right, et cetera, et cetera. So whenever I'm at the farms, I'll always go and look in these grass beds, right? And very quickly, you can see if a plant is going to run because the seeds will germinate at the base of the plant because, you know, it's nice and warm down there. They're getting a the regular drink, stuff like this. We have not seen that with any of the Bootaluyas. Mm. Now, I'm going to speak out of the other side of my mouth because like in the native areas of Bootaluyas, like, like up in the Rocky Mountain regions, Sandia Mountains, you know, going on up into Colorado, et cetera, et cetera, you know, uh, Bootaluyas are a native up there. So they do spread by rhyme zones, but they also spread by seeds. But at the moment, we have not seen that in the warmer regions. And I say at the moment, we have, we've had this plant in production for about five years. And we have not heard of, we have not heard of the plant, you know, moving around the garden. But we, um, you know, we're keeping our ears very much to the ground. Um, if you look, if you look over the top of the left-hand plant, you'll see a tall grass behind. That's a miscanthus, and miscanthus are starting to get a very bad rap for being invasive in the colder regions of America and in the warmer regions as well. Yeah, so you said that was a bad rap because it's yeah. not deserved or it's no, deserved. Sorry, about, meaning that they're, they're becoming invasive. My yeah. apologies. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and, and the miscanthus, I mean, I love miscanthus. I really do. I think they're a terrific plant. So, you know, if I, if I, if I, put one in my garden, then I, if I ever saw a, a, a volunteer, we call them, if a volunteer comes up, get in there with a shovel, dig it out immediately. And then uh, also when, before the seed heads come to fruition, I'd cut the seed heads off as well and just put them in the compost. Yeah, and is that common name uh, fountain grass? Uh, no, uh, um, no, what's the common name for miscanthus? Do you know, I think the common name is maiden hair grass. Uh, okay. I think it's, I think it's, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, you got to tell me not to keep using botanical names because it- No, no, it's like, funny because yeah. most people don't get the uh, botanical names, right? Yeah, no, that's right. So I think it's maiden hair grass is yeah, the common okay. name. Uh, should I keep going? Yeah, we got yeah. time for just a couple more slides. It'd be great. Right. So uh, th this is a cordyline. And that's the common name of the plant and the botanical. Cordylines are being used extensively in this Mediterranean type garden, whether they're used in a container or whether they're actually planted in the garden. This is a breakthrough plant, very, very water wise, very drought tolerant once established. Most cordylines have a thick stem and they get like 15 to 18 feet tall. This is a clumping variety, three to four foot tall, three to four feet wide, and has this wonderful narrow ruby red foliage. Um, now, what's important is that they need to be kept out of the very hot afternoon sun. They'll work nearer the coast, but the, the further you get back inland, where, where the blades arch over, if the sun is directed onto them uh, directly, that's where they'll burn. But they work in any low water garden. Tell you what looks really killer if you've got like a Mediterranean garden where you've got some rocks, you know, sandstone, that sort of thing. You put these beside the rocks or the rockery, right? Uh, or in a perennial garden, and the color of the rocks, they play off the, uh, the burgundy plays off that tan color uh, or uh, sandstone color of the rocks. They're absolutely beautiful. 
Yeah. That, so Nick, Nicholas, we have yeah. time for this one last question. And, and somebody's asking about the fertilization requirements of these uh, grasses. Is yeah. it high or can, can you just not worry about it? What is it? It's very low. Um, so I, I, I use a fertilizer called Grow Power, which, which should be available in, the, in the, like the 14 Western states. But fertilization of grasses is, is few and far between. You know, my grasses at home, the cordyline included, you know, it's kind of like when I'm out there with my fertilizer, you know, chances are I'll walk past the grasses like every second or third time then they'll get something scattered around the base or to the drip line. But for me, it's infrequent because, you know, I'm mulching and normally the, the, nat the naturally occurring fertilizers and microbes in the mulch is normally uh, enough to keep them uh, looking good. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, Nicholas, you have been, as usual, just a wealth of information today. I uh, so you. appreciate you coming on the webinar and uh, taking us through these plants that are uh, low water use, but absolutely stunning in beauty. They look good, don't they? Yeah. 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 And uh, as you know, uh, almost all the plants in my yards come from Everdy. And yeah, uh, I, I'm gonna be, I, I hope Friday's a payday because I know where I'm going to be headed out uh, Friday oh. afternoon. That's for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So. Again, thanks very much for coming on. I want to say thank you to all our viewers uh, and uh, especially the people who asked the questions today. We really appreciate that. We'll have some Jane Apparel going out to those of you who ask questions. So thanks for that. Remember, we've got over 200 trainings at uh, janesusa.com forward slash trainings. And we're also wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So uh, we're going to be back on uh, uh, Friday talking about ponics whether that's hydroponics uh, or other ponics, we're gonna learn all about that. And that's gonna be fun on Friday. Again, uh, Nicholas, thank you. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank and you. Uh, we'll see everybody Friday. Thank you.